Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is a bit of a flashback. It's a file that I found that I thought I had lost in a chat that I had with Aditi Mittal, who is an Indian comic and just a lovely human. We had this conversation in Edinburgh last year in a cafe. I think I probably put it aside because there's background noise in the cafe, which I've tried to minimize for your hearing pleasure we had a really interesting conversation and i think it's very much worth putting up we talked about oat milk finding your comedic voice what makes things traumatic uh, marathons dealing with flattery profuse sweating blacking out during a show the financial power of cuteness and working in a corporation so i i think it's very much worth listening to i hope you enjoy it i wanted to say thank you everybody who came out in adelaide it was an incredible incredible thing to see so many of the TCAST listeners there and Bugle listeners there made me very happy. I had such a hard festival. The first week was an absolute nightmare of just uh, thinking, what have I done? This show is way too ambitious. I'm never going to carry it off. I've got a robot. Like, why why would I do this to myself? It's never going to be good. Have I ever been funny? Just that whole thing that happens usually in the first week of any brand new show but more this time than ever before but by the second week I felt like I I have I have a show now which is such a relief so thank you everyone who came particularly in that first week where you were doing a lot more for me than I think I was doing for you Um, and I am very grateful for that I'm also very grateful to everyone on Patreon who's been supporting me both financially and just by sending lovely messages interesting messages asking me for various sorts of content if you are a patreon subscriber you can ask me to write an article about something or to address something on the podcast if you're interested in it and i will try to do that for you thank you also to the people who've um, subscribed at the high levels where we have a skype conversation um i was worried about putting that up as a potential reward i did it as a result of um of graham elwood he does that on his patreon and i thought this could be awful it could be you know just horrendous people doing horrendous things but all of the conversations I've had so far with that have been just fascinating and lovely and really beautiful so thank you for making me feel good about humanity and thank you everyone who's emailed me at alicerfraser at gmail.com or tweeted me at alliterative or tweeted about the show that makes a big difference to me as well Everyone, if you don't want to support the, the podcast financially but would like to support it, tell your friends. Um, I was I had one person come to the show, Lucinda, who told me that she tells all her friends to listen to Tea with Alice, and that's just such a great thing. Makes a makes me feel good in a world where I've just come out of the back of having a terrible existential crisis about what I'm doing in this world and whether it's worthwhile. So that's it. I will I will stop being sappy and let you get on with listening to this show. It's a great conversation. Aditi Mittal is... You should look her up. I think she has a special up on Netflix, and uh, she also has a Twitter account. So find that, seek her out, say nice things. You guys are wonderful. Thank you. You're having tea with Alice, and I'll see you next week. Who are you and what are you drinking? Hi, my name is Aditi Mittal uh, and uh, I am drinking a chai latte. Chai latte with soy milk? With soy milk. Why is that? Do you not like milk? Uh, 
no because it's available because <laughs> because i sort of i wanted to um i'm amazed by the amounts like the types of milk there are here there's oat milk i did not know oat had nipples <laughs> how can they milk an oat i don't, I don't know. know i think it's it's i think it's technically should be treated as oat juice or right? oat soup <laughs> i mean is an oat soup porridge which is oat delicious um <laughs> But I don't want porridge in my tea. That's like well, it's what you just had. You had soy <laughs> porridge in your tea. Yeah. One of the genius marketing decisions of all time was when they decided to put soy milk in the in the fridges in supermarkets because it doesn't need to be refrigerated. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So they put it there so it looks like it's milk, like it's fresh, like milk, and you know, all of that. Hey, so wait, almond milk also? Uh- almond milk too. Yes. It doesn't need to be refrigerated. No, not. I mean, after you open it, obviously, no. then yes. But otherwise, it's you know, it's stabilized. It's a, it's a stable product. It's not. I did not know that. I thought yeah. it worked with this, like the same principle as regular milk. Not quite. Although it can go off if you open it and then you leave it for too long. Hmm. I have once taken a very long gulp of uh, soy milk that had gone off. Oh, not a good idea. It is appalling. It is a terrible, <laughs> terrible thing to do to your mouth. You know, it's also one of those things that's an acquired taste. Like it's got this slightly bitter, synthetic taste to it. Yes. Um, and. Uh, how does it taste when it goes bad if it's already slightly bitter and synthetic? Uh, watery and chunky and very bad. Uh, it just, yeah, it was one of those things. I'd come back from a long run and I just opened it and poured way too much into my mouth and uh, then poured it straight back out of my mouth. Yeah, I did that with vodka once, like um, where I had gone for a run and my roommates were sort of getting ready to pre-game. Uh, and so there was this bottle of like what looked like water lying there. And I just came back from the run and opened the bottle and just took a giant swig and oh, then sprayed it all over everyone in the room. Because <laughs> I was like, "What is this?" Well, it's a very hygienic way to do that, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I didn't even spit it like it genuinely in my mouth and then just poured. I just poured straight back out of my mouth, back into the container. No, into the sink. Oh, that's disgusting. I mean, this is the classic thing with doing a podcast. The moment you start doing it, the volume goes up all around you yeah, in a cafe. Yeah, suddenly everyone's like, me too. <laughs> having a chat, having a loud chat. So what have you been wrestling with recently? What have you been in your brain? Um, you know, uh, just, uh, the, I guess, the varieties of milk available, <laughs> uh, which is really blowing my mind. Cashew nuts yeah. give their own milk. Uh, again, something I did not know. Uh, but you know the thing I've been grappling with is sort of um, what I, I want to write about and uh, who I am really, because there's this constant refrain, right? And I and I heard it a lot when I was starting out, and I spouted it myself a lot, um, and I spouted it myself a lot is about finding your voice, mm. and I feel like I suddenly lost grip over what my voice used to be or m- my voice is, because I don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, and it's got. It's, I think it's a combination of things. Um, whether it's uh, you know um, the things I really want to talk about, or the way I perceive comedy. Um, oh, did I mention I was a comedian? No, but no, that's cool. damn it! I so, can do it in the intro if you prefer, or you can do it now. You're okay. a comedian. I'm a comedian, uh, trying to be one. Um, and, I, and I think you know I sort of had my first special come out just now on Netflix, and uh, I just feel like. Um, in the interim of releasing that special and writing the second one, I sort of lost my way uh, because I was doing a lot of club gigs and uh, 
they it, reward a particular kind of comedy. Yeah, and, and that kind of comedy is sort of non-threatening and uh, sort of non-evocative, um, which I managed to do, luckily. Um, and I sort of was, I feel like I was passing my time uh, quite scared of saying things that I was really thinking and talking about things that I was really going through. Um, and coming to the Edinburgh Fringe, and this is my first time uh, doing the Fringe Festival. Uh, and I, I am just blown by the, the things I'm seeing here. I saw your show yesterday. Oh, and no. Oh, no. For your podcasters, listen, for your podcasting listeners, I have to say, man, I am just blown away uh, by what I saw yesterday. And my biggest regret is that I did not watch it at the beginning of the festival because I would have come and watched it every single damn night uh, just to see what uh, Alice is doing with it. Oh, you uh, can't do this to me. I can't deal with flattery, man. I can't. You know what? You're just going to have to deal with it. Oh, just well, I'm bright pink now. So uh, <laughs> it's the great thing about being at the festival. I mean, it's, I think, the thing that you pay for with your registration money is the ability to go and see everyone doing everything anything you could possibly want to see from weird theater to like the first year i came and i went to a networking event on the first night and i talked to a korean mime troupe who were doing an all mime non-verbal version of Chekhov's the cherry orchard that's amazing and then we were joined by a japanese couple who were doing a mime version of macbeth <laughs> like a dance dance mime version of macbeth and i was just like this is incredible this is the i mean this is the only place that could happen yeah, oh, in the world. I saw I saw Tom Walker. Amazing. Um, and uh, for those of you who are not going to get to see his show, oh my God, Tom Walker is sort of one of those people. His commitment to one single joke. Yeah. I'm not going to give it away, but it comes in the form of his hair. Okay. He's overcommitted to a very Just, very silly joke. And you, I, I couldn't believe it, and I. Like my sort of my set my I'm sort of very Indian auntie, right? I just went straight up. I was like, "What is this nonsense?" <laughs> he is a 36 year old man. He is prancing about in shorts in this cold, <laughs> and he's wearing that silly baseball cap on his head. And what is going on here? And for the first five ten minutes, I was almost like, "I was like, what is he doing?" But um, sort of the combination of uh, I mean, to a very large extent, uh, sort of clown work. Yeah. Um, and then just the creation of something out of nothing, um, where the audience is a, a, a part of the act. Yeah. Um, and uh, some people hate that. Oh my God! Right. Some people really do not like being part of the act, and I I don't tend to have much audience participation. I let people volunteer if they yeah, want to, yeah. and it usually only one and one a show. But yeah. he, uh, yeah, if you are not the kind of person who, if you're the kind of person who wants to sit back. And, and have co watch, whole comedy yeah. happen at you. Yeah. He is not the person not to the go person. to. But you know, that's the thing. Even in that, he sort of talks about the negative and the positive reactions that come to him. And I am amazed at the vulnerability that I have seen on display here. Because um, I just realized, uh, I mean, and I'd forgotten about, I think, in this interim while I was sort of busy losing my voice and trying to find out who I was. I lost my openness I lost my ability to be vulnerable uh, because I was suddenly protecting myself a lot uh, from you know the things that were happening around me and outside me 
What um, were you scared of? I mean, obviously, not wanting to be vulnerable. I mean, this is the great thing about art is that you can be vulnerable in a safe space. This is the yeah. point of my podcast is a safe space for dangerous ideas for you <laughs> to say something that you're not sure about or you're not comfortable with. And you see so much of that at the fringe. And it only yeah. happens when you actually feel safe is you yeah. can do something dangerous like yeah. that. So what were you scared of? You know, um, just sort of the the kind of... Like, I, I mean, I, I'm very... Uh, I, Twitter is my stomping ground. Uh, it's where I put my foot in my mouth uh, on a daily basis. And um, suddenly being exposed to sort of, uh, you know, I mean, having your thoughts having your thoughts boiled down to these 140 characters and then uh, having people react to that, react to that, and then the viciousness of the reactions and even like my YouTube comment section sometimes makes me want to like... Never um, read the comments. <laughs> Never. You know, and, and, I, and I sort of, I mean, I, I was like very like, oh, I don't give a shit and I'm all over it and I'm, you know, I'm too cool for this. And I internalized it so much for so long that I didn't realize I was doing it uh, and it was affecting me. Yeah. Um, and now I think I'm, you know, especially now being able to see more people do it. Um, more people sort of let it slide off their backs um, whether it's abuse whether it's like rape threats whether it's uh, you know judgments on my family's character like all those things that like I would just read and be like oh my god oh my god um, I'm realizing I'm not sort of and, and stand up is one of those things right where you put yourself out there um, and correct me if I'm wrong I don't know this is my sort of perception of comedy sometimes is that it is sort of, it can get, uh, it can get, like it's boiling a very, a big thought into a couple of sentences. Yes. So that you do sort of, um, unless you are speaking entirely in between lines, um, you do sort of have, you expect your audience to reach a certain space with you. Yes. Um, and not have them think that you are trying to sort of offend them or you know, attacking them or whatever it is. Yes. Um, and so, I, I... I mean, that's the thing about comedy. It's not a lecture. It's a conversation. And as people laugh, that's them saying, yes, continue, basically. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it complicity at that exact moment where they're like, yeah, we see, we see what we you see did what there. We see what you did there. Yeah, we get it, we get it. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually what I loved about your show yesterday uh, because I'm... I tend to, even when I'm performing, uh, I've noticed I always stand at the back of the stage uh, because I am terrified to just get up in front. Like literally 80% of my shows, I'm standing at the back of the stage, like right by the curtain, almost psychologically, like ready to escape, <laughs> um, you know, if things are going badly. Um, and uh, I don't think that's... Like, and I, I was watching your show yesterday and uh, you sort of had this... You know that moment when you were like, do you, do you guys want to go darker from here or do you want to like go safe? And at that moment, I like, felt the room. The room was just like, girl, no, we are with you. Go as dark as possible. And I thought that was so powerful that you let them make that decision. And uh, I think you said this just before this, that it was consensual... Um, sort of um, discomfort consensual, consensual discomfort consensual discomfort yes um, uh, well I mean often that's the difference between trauma and something exciting is your consent <gasps> you that's know? why yeah horror movies and adventure sports <laughs> yeah exactly that you know running a marathon if someone made you run a marathon 
that would be cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> like that would be a terrible thing to do to a human being. But there's people signing up, paying money to do it. Yeah. And it's you know, <laughs> why would you do that if, unless you wanted to? And there's there's many things in life that are like that that are sort of technically unpleasant but because you're doing them because you want to yeah you enjoy the shit out of them <laughs> yeah did I just compare my comedy to a marathon <laughs> I hand out electrolyte fluids midway through just to keep you going <laughs> and my fingernails my toenails are broken mm. yeah mm. oh I used to run marathons There's oh, one, of, one right? of my toenails is not a toenail anymore like what all were you doing like I was looking you up uh, when I met you I just sort of lost my brain I have to admit I may have like really creepily gone and done my Google search, uh, and and sort of your. May I ask you this question? Uh, when did you like? How did stand up sort of become a thing? Uh huh. I mean, this a very short potted history. I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before, but I went into university and I went to a in the O week a 24 hour play in a day, which was an improv thing. So they would, anyone who wanted to could come and get a slip of paper and then you would go onto stage and play out whatever the character was and their motivations. And it was a very funny thing and I watched it for like 45 minutes and it was hilarious. I, re- I was really sort of struck by how funny they were. And then I thought, I'll go up and I'll do it. And so I got the slip of paper and I went on and I was terrible. Like, terrible, 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 cringingly bad. And it was this weird thing where up until that point, I'd been good at most things that I'd tried. And the things that I weren't, wasn't good at, yeah. I would just be like, well, I don't care about that. <gasps> you know, like maths I wasn't good at. And so I dropped out of maths in year 10 and all of that yeah. stuff. And then I just thought, this is something that I am not good at, objectively terrible at. <laughs> I'm not attached to it. Yeah. So I can get better at it. Yeah. You know, being bad doesn't hurt my feelings. It doesn't make me feel like a bad person. I'm just a bad improviser, bad at comedy. Yeah. And so then it sort of became addictive because everything that I got, every bit that I got better, every you know time I got a laugh, that was something that I'd worked for. Yeah. And so there, yeah. there's not that fear of having a natural talent that you're letting down. It was starting really from the ground up. And then I did improv and then I did sketch comedy with the university reviews. And then I went to New York to work in a big investment bank as an intern in their um, HR department, legal, uh, integrating legal contracts. It doesn't matter. Boring. Yeah, I was just going to uh, say, what? <laughs> I got depressed and uh, couldn't do the socializing that you need to do to do improv or sketch. You need to yeah. have friends and meet friends. Yeah. And I was working long hours, but I still sort of wanted to do comedy because yeah. by that time I'd got a taste for it. And yeah. uh, so I started doing comedy. Um, I'd done one sort of stand-up competition before uh, with my brother as a double act. Um, How fun. Which was still sort of sketchy. Um, and then, Oh, my God. So I just thought I'll do stand-up because I uh, can. Uh, now, I, you know, I, by the time I started stand-up, I knew how to hold a mic. I knew what a joke was. I knew how to... You know, keeping an audience's attention. Yeah. And then once you do stand up, it's very hard to go back to working as a group because yeah, there's so many logistics. And once you're not in university anymore, everyone has lives and yeah. is busy and put together like rehearsal time and stuff yeah, like that. It just it's seems just like so much work. So now I'm stuck. <laughs> what a fantastic place to be stuck, I say. Yeah. So I, d- I don't know. I think. Uh, 
I, I don't know if that's a normal route into it or, or whatever, but I like it. Makes me happy. I think you are fabulous, I have to say. Just yeah. meeting you today actually has been the highlight of the festival. Oh. I'm not going to lie. That is has. a ridiculous thing to say, but thank you. <laughs> it has. I mean, not Tom Walker taking off his hat. Oh my God, though, though. Having said that, that's number three. That's uh, his taking off his hat. <laughs> Just as a side note, if you have seen that show, he had a friend's wedding. Oh my God. In the middle of shows. So he had to maintain that joke <laughs> at the wedding. Just so you know. That's oh my God, that is sensational. I cannot believe that commitment is something that ridiculous. It is extremely ever. stupid. <laughs> but that's a, yeah, there is a sort of a, a great pleasure in watching somebody overcommit to something to that extent. Yeah, oh my God, yeah, yeah. Like, I, and it's, <laughs> at the end of the show, he sort of plays this uh, saxophone as everyone leaves <laughs> with like a, a board stuck on his head. Um, and I just, like I was, just the creating something out of nothing is something yeah. that I've seen now, um, you know, happen repeatedly on stage um, over the past few weeks. And it's really blown my mind and it's actually made me sort of much stronger uh, and much more willing to fail. Yeah. Um, oh, you have to be able to fail. Like, that is the great thing yeah. about comedies. You have to be bad to get good. Yeah. You just cannot be good. I mean, you see some people who sort of start off naturally funny. Yeah. They tend to die off quite quickly. If that's all they're dependent on, their natural talent, yeah. Yeah, because then it's, you know, you need to be bad. You need to yeah. take risks. You need to fail. Uh, you know, there's this sort of, because I guess uh, the Indian comedy scene is sort of only seven years old right now. And uh, there isn't sort of um, the variety of comedy um, that can be seen or that is perceived as stand-up comedy is not sort of very prolific. It's, there's not too much of it. Mm. Um, and so... Uh, being Seeing the varieties of, of things happening here has sort of made my mind sort of explode and I'm really looking forward to uh, going back and you know sort of imbibing that fearlessness imbibing that willingness to fail um, and that the need to take risks I think willingness to fail is different from looking for risks yes. uh, and I want both like I think I want to do both I think yeah. it's, it's been an amazing uh, sort of time here yeah there's an incredible thrill it's, it's a skydiving but very safe because you yeah. get that fight or flight thing you get that this could this could fly or this could sink like a stone yeah and you have to have the confidence that you can bring it back that you've got enough material or enough charm or enough connection with the audience that if something goes badly yeah you can all just look at each other and be like oh well <laughs> next thing that was fun <laughs> You know, I, oh, that's what I loved about this as well, right? Is that there was no... Like, I, I've never done comedy 30 days in a row. Yeah, um, you get so much stronger. You step up a notch, don't oh you? Oh, my God. And the thing is, I sort of... Um, like, there's no time to recover. There's no time to recover from a bad review. There's no time to recover from someone heckling you. There's no time to recover from even having a cold and a cough. You're like, sorry, tickets have been sold. You just show up. Yeah. Um... And no matter, so actually I had a very weird thing happen to me this time, uh, was uh, I was, uh, I had like a headache, okay, in, in, um, my show's at 6.30 in the evening and I had a headache and 
I sort of slept through the day and then got ready and uh, went for the show. And obviously, because I'd been sleeping through the day, I don't think I'd eaten a whole lot. And my show is at the Underbelly Med Quad, which is essentially shipping containers put together yeah. to form a room. And that day it was sold out. And uh, I started doing the show and I started sweating profusely. Right? Oh, and I realized sign. I had no jokes for profuse sweating because I had not experienced profuse sweating. <laughs> and not to the extent that I... Like it was coming down the sides of my face, collecting at my chin and falling off. Like just drop, drop, drop. To the point that someone from the audience came and gave me a tissue paper. <laughs> being like, you're sweating a lot. And I was like, oh, thanks. That's so nice. I dabbed myself and I started feeling out of breath and uh, I did that thing and I again you know to me I'm, I, I still sort of take it so um, like I think I'm in my cloyingly earnest phase where I'm like no 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 no, no they've come I have to entertain them you know I can't sort of be sweating on stage and I can't be coughing on stage no you don't want to be human that would be terrible <laughs> and so I so I just went like I was like oh guys you know I'm, can I just cough a bit and then I put down the mic and I'm mortified in my head that I'm coughing. And I seem like I cough for like feels like a month, okay? And then I don't remember anything after that. Uh, and then the next thing I come to is uh, I'm on the floor. <laughs> and uh, apparently I had carried the hell on for 30 more minutes. While sweating profusely. <laughs> My tech was like, you know, you coughed, 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 put like picked up the mic and went back to exactly the same level you were at. So everyone thought you were okay. Uh, and then I apparently started a sentence and just went boom down. Fainted. Uh, yeah, oh, in God. the middle of the show. Uh, and I was really bummed out because I was like, oh my God, a full house, you know, this sucks. But, I, I don't um, think they think that's part of your comedy. Like, I don't think they'll be <laughs> judging your comedy on the fact that you fell over. <laughs> like, you know, dead faint. <laughs> Just, yeah. Imagine her comedy was so bad, she died in the middle of it. Like, no, 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 no. I mean, that's happened before. Comedians have died on stage before. Uh, literally. The ultimate punchline. It's the ultimate punchline. It's the end of the show. Uh but it is it is a really interesting thing. I think failure is a fascinating thing. I think yeah. one of the problems in our society is that people don't like failing. They like yeah. failing if it ends in a success story, of course. Yeah. But that's yeah. not a real failure. But, like, for example, science. You know, there's this terrible statistic out now that most science studies, statistically most science studies, as in more than 60%, cannot be replicated. So it's not good science. Because science originally, as a kind of a, a, a hypothesis, is that you can try things and then eventually... Repetition and establishment, repetition, establishment of... Establishment. Huh. Yeah. But in order to do that, you have to be willing for your experiments to fail. You have to treat failure as, as important and useful and information-laden as success. Yeah. But because you have this academic system now where people have to publish and you have to, in order to publish, you have to have something interesting and in order... So all of these... Um, all of the motivations are that you have to succeed, yeah. which it's important for science to fail sometimes. Yeah. Otherwise, where does it go? Yeah. What do you do? You know, speaking of motivations, the, the one thing that really uh, sort of, one fact that I heard really that blew my mind was that we only, that um, when it comes to donating money for uh, animal extinctions, 
we tend to donate more money for cute animals <laughs> so like there's a bunch of like money in trying to save pandas yeah uh, but nobody cares about the blue footed booby uh, yeah. which is an ugly little bird uh, that just you know is sort of dying off the face of the earth and yeah you're right i, I didn't think, think of it that way that motivations rule a lot of um, a lot of failure stuff. and well i mean I, there was a comedian who had a joke about that about pandas of just like you know there are other animals that are struggling to survive these guys <laughs> can't digest the only food they'll eat and they won't fuck <laughs> like let them go Oh my god so I had the ex- I so I did a, a set, I I did a set on pandas as well like in the beginning of my career which because I was blown I was like you know they don't they don't want to have sex and by the way pa- pandas eat bamboo shoots all day a single panda needs 6 kgs of bamboo shoot a day yeah to survive so they keep chewing and while they're chewing because their entire day their entire waking time is occupied by chewing I'm like this is mo- like mother nature telling us let him go let him go let him go who else had a really good joke someone else had a really good panda joke of like well if i were a panda i'd just want to cuddle too oh that's really cute which is very cute i i there is also this thing called panda diplomacy by the way which is where china keeps giving away pandas to like places to be like we like you here's a panda and you're like why, why would you do that it's like someone it's like a random stranger gifting you a dog you're like that's pretty good though <laughs> I, I want China to give me a panda. <laughs> If anyone here is in the diplomatic core of China, give me a panda. <laughs> reach out, reach out. I don't know. I don't think I could support a panda. I don't have a home at the moment. So, uh, Wait, do you have a home? No, all my stuff's in storage back in Melbourne. I have to decide what I'm going to do with my life after the fringe. Oh no. Oh. It's this terrible thing. The end of the fringe is like I I'd put a lot of things off till after the fringe because yeah. it seems like such a mountain before you get there. It seems like yeah. the, you know, a wall. And then when you're looking over the other side of the mountain, you're like, "Oh no, now I have to actually do all that <laughs> stuff I said I was going to do." My life, I have to live it. Yeah. This sucks. Got to get on with it. Can't live in a bubble forever. <sighs> I mean, it is an amazing bubble, right? Like, everyone's posting their reviews and then, you know, things are happening in the real world. Oh I I I saw a, I saw a conversation today on Twitter about how uh, there's a critic that uh, keeps doing keeps getting uh, free tickets for shows but doesn't hasn't been doesn't reviewing doesn't review them Yeah Beck Hill called him out on Twitter <laughs> Yeah which I thought was really funny Well it's true I was like I want to do that <laughs> Yes Yes. Well, I mean, there's all those student review sites, but you have to write a review if someone gives you a free ticket. Yeah. I think. I don't think you have to, but it sort of depends on what your agreement is. But can you do that? Can you just get a get a like be like I'm come I'm a I will potentially write you a review, so Yeah. So yeah, you, can. you you give me a free ticket, but I don't have to write you a review? Yeah. I mean, it depends again on the contract that you have, which might be a verbal understanding or an implicit understanding, but I think for most people If you think about an implied contract, right? Oh. So, you know, if we're talking about law, oh god. Uh, if we're talking about law, you can have an implied contract. So, okay. the kind of agreement that normally governs this sort of contract if you don't make an explicit contract, okay. then the courts might still hold you to an implied contract that this is the kind of thing you know, if I walk into a shop and I pick up a dress and I hand you $20, 
Huh. The implied contract is that I'm getting that dress for that twenty dollars, right? right? Yeah, and yeah. That, and that you know all of the kind of statutory protections then apply. If I want to return the dress because it's not fit for purpose, I can do that. Yeah. You can't say that's not part of the contract unless yeah. you've said that already specifically before. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. You'd have to say. You'd have to ask the reasonable man, the uh, imaginary reasonable man, <laughs> the man on the Clapham omnibus, uh, what he thought. If, if if you picked up a man off a bus and yeah. go, hey mate, okay. if I give a reviewer a free ticket to my show, yeah. do they have to write a review and see what he says? The man on the bus. Yes, that's a really like really cool uh, sample size, I guess. Yes, I mean that's the technical term for. A reasonable man. The man on the Clapham omnibus is your average guy. But of course, the law is governed by what judges, who are not your average man, yeah. think an average man would, would think, think in that circumstance. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's a that's complete crazy. legal fiction. Uh, I love legal fictions. I liked studying law. I didn't like being a lawyer, but... Why is that? I didn't like working in a big corporation. It's like being an organ inside a sociopath. It's no fun. <laughs> You're like, I'm Jack the Ripper's lungs. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. And and also, not just that, but you're sort of replaceable. And I'm, you know, arrogant enough to feel like I should do something that only I can do. Yeah. Oh, my God. Actually, that is the reason. So, I sort of worked in a... Uh, in a I sort of interned in a bunch of corporates when I was in college as well. And... Uh, I think that was what was sort of most scary to me was that uh, I was just a desk and a chair behind a desk. Uh, and so everything I did felt hollow. Everything f- I did felt like it was doable by anybody else. And and so there was no inherent value in what I was doing. Yes. Oh, hello. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it is exactly that feeling. And I, maybe that's our generation being spoiled and wanting to be special. But yeah. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It you is know, it what wasn't it even about feeling special. It was about feeling... Uh, human? Human, yes, yes. I, I, I would lose that swipe card every day. I would lose that swipe card every day, almost psychologically, because I did not want to go inside. Yeah. I would lose that swipe card at lunch in the morning. Well, particularly also nowadays when a lot of that kind of work, that behind-a-desk work, will be replaced by computers. Yeah. Soon. And you know, earlier, I think in the corporate structure also, there were stories of like somebody who worked with the company for 25 years and, you know, look at the, the way the company, I mean, you, loyalty towards companies. Like my dad used to be really traditional. My dad sort of uh, uh, was one of those people that every company that he ever worked for, um, you know, he was, he was holistically loyal to them and uh, spoke very well of every company, no matter how he had been treated or had treated the company. Yeah. He was very loyal because he was like, oh, you know, this is my bread and butter and it's the source of my income and, you know, I have, like, I've been given loyalty. I've given loyalty and seen loyalty from them and I've had made friends there and everything. And I, and when I sort of, I used to see that and get a little confused because I was like, oh, but, you know, isn't this sort of, like, aren't, aren't you uh, uh, sort of, Replaceable, like didn't they treat you in a way that was not one hundred percent fair? Yeah. And how do you still have this loyalty towards them? Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I, you know, I that's it. Almost actually, his experiences made me fearful 
for uh, my own experiences that I was like, I don't think it's like this is not a safe investment emotionally and well it's this weird thing where the corp- the structure of the corporation the vertical structure came out of the wars the and it's, it replicates a military structure uh, ah. and it works that kind of structure works when there is reciprocal loyalty and there is this sense of responsibility to the company man to look after your employees and so on and so yeah. forth uh, that is not inherent to capitalism that's inherent to like old oh. value systems, feudalism, Christianity, uh, religious ideas act as a really good handbrake on capitalism, which is just appetite. Capitalism uh. is just appetite. With no, with no morality behind an appetite, it just eats everything and ruins everything. And sort of as those old feudal systems and as those old religious beliefs start to evaporate then you're just left with just rapacious appetite and it's not turning out very well no it's not is it no and it it is um, I'd be interested to see where it goes now because I don't think it can work like that forever yeah. Um, yeah. You know, in the Industrial Revolution, when there were, you know, children in factories in the UK. Yeah. Uh, I, I imagine there are still some in India. Oh, yeah. Tons, tons. After a while, it was the religious women who made that stop. They were the ones who went in and oh. caused a big fuss and, you know, so this idea children. created the idea of childhood was that idea that children were innocent and shouldn't be treated like that. That was not, yeah. that was not inherent to capitalism. capitalism. Oh, of course not. That was a religious idea that, that children were innocent, they were the, the lambs of God and you shouldn't mistreat them in this way. Despite oh, yeah. the fact that it was profitable to do so. It wasn't yeah. like using children became less profitable. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was this... Yeah. It was a, an external idea. Oh, but maybe because... Children just didn't have that many life skills, I guess. <laughs> that could be one of them. Like, Yeah, well, no, they're very good. <laughs> little, little tiny hands. Oh, my God, this is so messed up. Little, very efficient children. Uh, um, you know, in India, we have a, a, a very sort of... Uh, uh, like, during Diwali, we have the firecracker industry. So, we have a lot of firecrackers, uh, the fireworks in, uh, in India. We sort of go crazy with those uh, during Diwali. And uh, one of the things that I remember sort of looking at was that you know these firecrackers these are like t- tiny bombs or like you know yeah, I don't know what the, I don't Catherine know what the English yeah, yeah, yeah I don't know what the English words are um, and all these sort of firecrackers were really tiny right and then someone told me that it was because children were used in these factories because they had tiny hands so it was easier for them to pack the gunpowder into these small bombs and these small wheels and oh, the small no. And I was just horrified by that thought. And oh, now you can't enjoy fireworks anymore. No way! I'm telling you, I see fireworks here, and I'm like, I don't even care if they're ethically done. Stop it! Like, I don't want to see this. Nothing's You're worth. You're encouraging the industry. Yeah, and nothing's worth sort of like. And actually, I want to ask you this, right? Because uh, what is the the life cycle of a, sh- a live performance in uh, in the in in Australia and UK? And is it different from, uh, say, the one in the US? Yes. Because I, I was thinking about the fireworks. I was like, that's too temporary. It's like literally for 36 seconds tops. Yeah. Uh, and is that how it is with the live scene in Australia as well? Or how does that last? 
Well, uh, a show lasts as long as you want it to, but um, in Australia you have the festival cycle, which is a year long. So the annual Melbourne International Comedy Festival, the standard thing is to do a new show every year. Some people do a new show every two years, but you don't bring the old show back generally. Okay. Unless there's special demand for it or you you won an award last year and sold out everything and people want to see it again. For the most part, people do a new show every year. Yeah. Uh, in the absence of festival comedy, if you're not doing the festivals, you do an, a new show until it's on television or Ooh. until it's been recorded. And then once it's recorded and in the public eye, then, you know, you don't... Why yeah. would someone want to see the same, same thing. comedy? And so what is this, uh, the distribution structure, say, for example, for the recordings? Do you, like, upload it online? Do you release a DVD? Do you put it on a thumb drive? Some people would release a DVD. Uh, you can get it commissioned by the ABC or by Channel Stan in Australia or by Netflix or whatever, and then it's out there in the public and it's a, you know, after that you would feel weird doing that material. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's an interesting thing, I think. I think a year is about the right. In the US, it's different. People tend to run their material for much longer. Yeah. And they don't tend to do the hour-long solo show, which is so prevalent here. They've started doing it because of Netflix. Yeah. They've started doing these one-man show type things. But they call them a one-man show often rather than what we would just call a stand-up hour. Uh, They call it a one-man show or a special. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so that's governed by the rules of television rather than by the rules of a festival, which are an hour-long show in a theatre. Yeah. It has to be more than just punchlines. Yeah. Oh, it has to be like a thought. Um, You know, and so when... when, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be, but I mean, those are the conventions. Uh When uh, when, uh, stand-up comedy started in India... um, you know, it actually started with a comedy store uh, mm. that is based out of London that came to India. And uh, so we, like, essentially the comedy we were doing and the things we were talking about were club things, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And so when I saw, because I was not exposed to much uh, uh, sort of uh, hour-long comedy. Yeah. Because also not a lot of the hour-long comedy uh, from the UK or Australia gets on the internet or gets, DVDs are not easily available there and sort of, the, the ABCs are sort of all based in out of Australia so I won't get to see them I'll send you a link oh please please something that is something that works in uh, the Indian oh but I'll change my VPN hey hey um, and so this and the specials I was watching on Netflix were all sort of literally what seemed like six 20 minute six 10 minute club sets yes sort of put together and yeah, that's, that's often your, what they are in the US yeah and and so that's the that's the format I had been really that that's 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 what I thought every format was I yeah. was not aware of uh, this sort of um, the hour-long show yeah uh, and and this is possibly the first time I'm seeing it like um, you know and I think your show was sort of a real fucking I'm. So, I have to admit, I, this I is really weird. I wouldn't take me as a model for anything. I'm not. I don't do things <laughs> necessarily the way I you will. should. I will. Because um, uh, you know, sort of uh, the the sort of opening up of a bunch of strings at the beginning of the show, and then the closing of them uh, through various points of the show, uh, whether it's David or whether it's. Susan. Yeah. Um, these are these are all in jokes of her yeah. show. So meh, sorry. Um, you know those like that I think is I'm finally seeing that live for the first time in my life yeah um, and I'm understanding that there's a the one hour stand up show versus the club sets put together 
yeah are just two different creatures and in india right now uh, you know we're, we're doing this thing where there's a lot of pressure to release your video online release your video online write 10 minutes and then release 5 minutes so that you can fill up rooms yeah right um and it's like i don't know it's sort of self defeating because then you um you're sort of running around in circles just search, looking to fill up rooms really the entire time mm. uh, your your aim is to fill up the next show fill up the next show fill up the next show and uh, i'm not sure if that is conducive to developing an hour long set yeah um uh, though having said that by that merit the market is so wide open yeah it's you can huge. do anything you can do anything people don't know what it is you can right? tell them what it is yeah. you can tell them what comedy is yeah. it's a brand new scene you can do anything I mean the thing that I've noticed about brand new scenes is that they sort of seem to go through almost predictable stages. Yeah. In that your first couple of years are as you say very clubby, very much differences between men and women, yeah. very much uh, uh sort of maybe ethnic accents perhaps. Yes. yes. Uh, and and that's that's great. But yeah. then then at that beyond that point anything is possible. Yeah. You can do anything you want with the scene. Because you know, I I just started doing hour-long trial shows. Mm-hmm. I just started doing them six months ago. Yeah, and I did not know this was a format that was doable. Like, and I mean, I think I'm very lucky in that I get to I, I can fill up thirty people uh, for a trial show. Like, I can sort of Tweet I sell tickets at like yeah. one fourth the price. Yeah, uh, and then I tell them it's a trial show, so don't expect much. Uh, and I'm I'm very lucky that I can sort of fill that up. um which is why i can explore the one hour format yeah. now you can uh, play with it before then ever before in my career and uh, so it's really exciting that is very exciting i mean as one sort of tip having done this for a couple of years now uh people get tired at 40 minutes so you got to change it up whether you make it higher energy or lower energy at 40 yeah. minutes people start to slag yeah, and laugh like- for 40 minutes straight. Yeah. So you have to build some shape into it. Just kill That's someone the in the show. I have for you. Just kill someone in the show. Kill someone Just in the show. Just like you know and, and guys I want to tell you about the time I died. Yeah. Dun 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 everyone's awake. What happened? Yep. <laughs> a PowerPoint presentation, a song uh whatever it is. That's a, yeah. that is a pretty good rule of thumb. 40 to 45 minutes there'll be a dip. Yeah. You'll feel like maybe your comedy isn't that good at that yeah. moment. Uh you know and so the the first special I was doing uh it's called things they won't let me say it's on Netflix right now and what I was doing was I was sort of splitting it up and because the club I was performing at they 100% wanted an interval in the middle because yeah. they had to sell booze yeah and so uh so what I was doing was I was doing this character then 20 minutes of stand up then break then character and then 20 minutes of stand up so it was like a like a 75 minute show yeah uh but with these sort of constant interruptions and constant um changing up changing of the... up of what is happening on stage yeah um and i was and you, this advice that you're giving about the 40 minute mark i i'm going to definitely keep it in mind because i i feel like i'm uh, that'll I mean, be useful there's nothing that there's nothing that says it has to be an hour you can do You can do an hour and a half if you want. You can do forty minutes if you want. You can do however long you I, want. I don't want me on stage for that long. So I, I can understand the audience being like, "I'm done, Alti. Go home." <laughs> oh, good. Where can people find you online other than on Netflix? Uh, so I'm on. Uh, I'm on. Uh, uh, and I'm nervous. Why? I don't know. I'm on uh, Twitter uh, with at a w r y a d i t i. That's Arai Aditi. 
Um, my website is aditimittal.com. That's A-D-I-T-I-M-I-T-T-A-L.com. My uh, Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash the Aditi Mittal project. Don't ask. I made this extremely inconvenient because I started everything at a different stage in my life and career. That is fine. Um, and so, yeah. And thank you so much for having oh, me, it's Alice. It's my absolute pleasure. I'm going to hope that this is not too loud to edit down into something coherent. <laughs> uh, and otherwise, we'll have to do it again. Oh, hey, I don't mind. Thanks for coming. Bye.